Um, as we have been working our way through the life of David, I really hope that you haven't arrived at this point where you think that the reason this story is in the Bible is to make us want to say, oh, if only I were more like David. If only I were more like David. Because we see that David is not perfect. David is very much like one of us. His life is filled with peaks and troughs, good points and bad points. We see there are times whenever his faith is strong and he's close with God. And we see other times where David seems so far removed from God and forgetful of God. That his life is much like ours because it is up and down and our relationships wane and get strengthened. But this chapter in particular, we reach a point where David's life has hit a real pit. He's entered into a real trough where he is betrayed by close friends and family members. And we might be tempted to, to wonder what's going on, but I think through all of this, we can see one thing that's certain. Though David's life may go up and down, though everyone around him may seem to fluctuate, God is always faithful to him as God is always in control, even in the midst of this deep suffering that he's going through. Do you see how torturous this would have been to David whenever he was going through all of this? Maybe some of you have kids and your kids rebel and maybe don't do quite what you want. Um, we are now entering into that stage of parenthood, um, even at 11 months old. It can be frustrating whenever your kids disobey and it can be frustrating whenever loved ones you know do something that you wish they wouldn't do. But David, David here sees that his own son is not only rebelling against him, but his own son is plotting to overturn him and to kill him. We get a real view of the sort of character that Absalom was in this chapter. Um, we see in verse one, we see the real vanity of Absalom, where he, he, has a, he rides around in a chariot with horses and has 50 men to run ahead of him. And we read in earlier passages how Absalom was one of the best looking men in all of Israel and had this luscious long hair. But if you think about it, if he's riding around in a chariot, usually you go in a chariot for speed. Why would you then put 50 men in front of it? Because the men are not going to be running as fast as the horse. This is all to create a spectacle, to have a huge crowd running through the streets of Jerusalem as Absalom would ride behind on the horse, giving this air of importance and of luxury and prestige. And we see that even in the way that he conducts himself with people, he's almost like a greasy politician in the way that he manipulates those around him. If you look down at verse four, we see that he would, whenever somebody would come into the the city wanting to, an audience with the king to sort out some dispute or some argument. He would wait at the gate and tell them, oh, there's nobody from the king here to hear you. He would lie to them. But then he would come out with this line, if only I were the appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that he receives justice. To put it bluntly, Absalom is a lick. And he is consistently a lick in all that he does. Whenever somebody bows before him as you would before royalty, he does the politician thing like kissing the baby where he says, oh no, don't bow down to me. And he lifts them up and he kisses them back. We see that in the way that he conducts himself, even with his face, he, 
He says that, oh, I have made a vow whenever I was in Geshur that I would go off to Hebron. He needs to get in the, the, the religious vote as well, you see. And he says, oh, I need to go fulfill this vow, even though it's taken him four years. And he goes off and takes a band of men with him. All of this to try and curry as much favor as he can with as many people as he can. But I think the more sinister side of it is seen whenever you see how Jerusalem reacts, where the city evacuates whenever they realize that Absalom's heart, or the people of Israel's hearts have been taken by Absalom. And what is kind of alluded to here, although it's not explicitly said in the passage, is that if Absalom were to come back, it would be a siege. And it would not be a simple argument between David and Absalom, but it would be a warfare that sees people starving. And so we see the people flee out of the city, the priests offer sacrifices while the refugees leave Jerusalem. Absalom doesn't just dislike his dad, he hates him enough to want to overthrow him. And if that weren't bad enough, if that weren't betrayal enough, we read of Ahithophel. Ahithophel, who is one of the most prominent advisors to David's throne. If he was a spad, he would be the top spad in Stormont. He is the most influential person outside of the king, to the point where in the next chapter, if you look at the last verse in chapter 16, verse 23, it says, in those days, the advice of Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. Whenever he gave advice, it was as if God himself spoke. That was how seriously people took the advice. But Absalom sends for him, and Ahithophel realizes that he's maybe got better chances with Absalom than with David, and so he abandons David at his point of most need. And as we get towards the end of this chapter, we read this story of David climbing the Mount of Olives and weeping as he goes. And we might be tempted to say, where's God in all this? Where is God amidst David's suffering? If God is really faithful to David, why is all this happening? But I think if we take a step back, we can begin to see how God is controlling all of this, the suffering and the betrayals to shape and bring David back to himself. We're going to see that in three different ways this morning. We're going to see it first in God's control in the suffering of David. We're going to see it in God's control in the shaping. We're going to see God's control in the saving as well. God's, but we'll start off with God's control in the suffering. David is suffering here. This is not a good time for David. David is going through a really difficult point of his kingship. And we might be wondering, well, where's God in all of this? How can a good God allow suffering? If any of you have chatted to non-Christian friends, that's probably one of the first questions you get asked. How can a good God allow suffering? Because our society has got a massive problem with suffering. It doesn't know what to do with it. Because the culture we live in is one that's obsessed with trying to get meaning through happiness. So what do you say to somebody? Do whatever makes you happy. If your job isn't satisfying you, do one that makes you happy. If whatever you're doing isn't bringing you happiness, try something else. And this whole idea of doing whatever it takes just to be happy has been called therapeutic culture. That's kind of the term it's developed. And there's a whole body of literature coming out from psychology departments on how destructive this idea of therapeutic culture can be 
of just be happy and as long as you're happy, everything else is okay. And we see that even in the way that you hear people kind of talk about the food that they eat. Um, Peter Singer, who's one of probably one of the most famous atheist uh, philosophers alive at the minute, is also a vegetarian. He says the reason he's a vegetarian isn't because animals die, but it's because they suffer. Suffering is such a problem to him, it means that he can't eat animals. But if they're animals that don't receive pain like shellfish, he's happy enough too. Why? Because it's not death we have a problem with. It's suffering, because suffering robs us of our happiness. Um, in the 1970s, there was a report issued um, by a group of three psychologists called Lottery Winners and Accident Victims is Happiness Relative, and it was reviewed recently in the New York Times. And it was an article that was written in 1971, and it kind of summarized the thing that we all know, which is even if you're really, really rich, it doesn't make you happy because we all know somebody who's really, really rich, but also really miserly and miserable. And people who've been through accidents can end up living happier lives out the other side because they say, well, you know, I might not have much, but at least I'm here to tell the tale. But this journalist who wrote the review article, Jennifer Senior, she, she has this paragraph in it where she says that there may be no way to permanently increase the total of one's pleasure, they concluded, except by getting off the hedonistic treadmill entirely. So what they, were, what they were saying in the article was, the only way to be truly happy is if you give up on the idea that you'll ever be happy. And faced with that conclusion from this psychological study, Jennifer Senior writes this. She says, but that's all very well and good. But what on earth do you live for if not happiness? That is a question we need to ask ourselves and we need to really think about it. What are we living for? What are we living for? Because we live in a world that says live for happiness, but happiness can never be enough. Happiness can never be enough to be all that you live for. As Tim Keller once wrote, he said that to live for happiness means that you're trying to get something out of life. But when suffering comes along, it takes the conditions for your happiness away. And so suffering destroys all your reason to keep living. If we live for happiness, we are actually sucking meaning out of life because whenever we go through periods of suffering and trial, we can't find any reason or meaning in them. If we are worshiping happiness, we will always be left looking more and more and more and never being satisfied. And I think we can sometimes even act like that as Christians, even though we would never say it. Even though as good Presbyterians, we'll say, well, what's our chief end? Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But often I think that the way that we, we, we want that to articulate in our lives is that, well, I'll glorify God whenever he's doing good things for me and keeping me out of trouble and keeping me healthy and keeping me happy and keeping me wealthy. But whenever the bad times come, whenever we get the, the diagnosis of that chronic illness that's not, not gonna go away, or whenever we get more bad news about our friend who we've been praying for for so long, or whenever we just go through dark periods of depression. I think so often what we want to pray is, God, take the bad situation away. Take the bad circumstances away. And if we went through something like David, we would say, God, strike down Absalom, take Absalom away. But often God is in the midst of the suffering. 
And God uses the suffering to shape us and to bring us back to himself. Whenever we pray, we want to be people who are able to pray, not just that the situation would, that would get better, but that we would be able to see the situation as an opportunity, that we might be changed through the process of it. Um, the psychologist uh, David Powelson said that unhinged from the purposes of sanctification and from the groaning for the coming king, prayers for our circumstances become self-centered. If we see our suffering divorced from our sanctification, our, our growing in godliness and growing in likeness of Christ, we can only become self-centered. But if we see our suffering as our being shaped by God into something more like Christ, we begin to see how suffering can be redeemed and used for his glory. David prays in this chapter. Do you wonder how long it's been since we've seen David pray in the course of his life? It's been chapters since we've seen something like that happen. David would not have prayed if he hadn't went through this difficult trial of Absalom's conspiracy. The suffering has driven David back to God. And we see now how God controls it to shape him. He uses it, controls it in two ways. Firstly, he uses the role of friends in David's life to shape him. Um, we read about two friends in particular. We read about Ittai the Gittite. Um, Ittai would have been a Philistine. He would have been somebody who would in theory been an enemy of the people of God, but he had been exiled from his nation and had come to live with David just the day before. And there's almost a contrast that takes place where this servant who has just walked into David's house is more faithful to David and wants to stay with David whenever one of his longest serving uh, advisors, the one beginning with H, um, whenever he abandons him, who has been with him for years, there is this one Philistine who stays with him even in the midst of it. We read of um, his other friend, Hushai the Akrite. Hushai, who would have been another advisor in the king's court, maybe not quite as influential as the other one, but he comes before David, his robe torn and ashes on his head, and he vows that he will go and effectively become a spy for David in the midst of it. David is surrounded by people who can help and support him, even in the midst of his darkest trials. As one commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, wrote, he said, one of God's ways of supporting you is to give you a friend who stands with you in your darkest hour. That's surely something we all know a bit of truth to. We all know who our true friends are whenever the bad illness comes or whenever the darkness comes, because they're the ones who stand with us even in our darkest hour. And that those are the friends who shape us, because those are the friends who are close enough to tell us what we need to do whenever we don't know what we want to do ourselves, and to tell us off whenever we're doing things that are self-destructive. And David places these relationships around David to shape him and to form him. We've been robbed of those relationships recently as a church. COVID has separated us. It's very hard to have those close relationships over a team's call. And I think as things begin to open up again, I think one of the things that we really want to prioritize is building not just that our, we would be up and running again, but that the fellowship that we have missed out on, the friendship, those key friendships that shape and form us 
and refine us for God's glory, that we could restore them and use them again. Because this is such an influential way that God shapes his people through the friendship and fellowship that he places us in, in the communities and the churches that we live in. The other way we see that David is shaped is he's shaped by his faith. Zadok, who's the priest, and the Levites, who are the the tribe of the priests, Zadok wants to bring um, the Ark of the Covenant with David, almost as like a good good luck charm, a lucky talisman, to try and ward off any bad things that might happen to David. But we see that David's faith has risen to a height that we haven't seen for many chapters. If you look down at verses 25 and 26, it says, Then the king said to Zadok, Take the ark, of the, the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. David's faith says something that I think is quite terrifying to say. And he says, let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Let God do to me whatever seems good. That is a scary prayer, isn't it? As a prayer that I imagine we would want to be trusting in God so much before we would ask that. But that then asks the question, what is the good that David is looking God to do? What is the good that David is searching for? If we think that the good that God offers us is that we are happy or that we are healthy or that we are wealthy, we are misplaced in the way we think God is good to us. Because the way that God is good to us is not by making us happy and healthy and wealthy. The way that God is good to us is he brings us into fellowship and a knowing, saving relationship with him. God's goodness is most on display whenever he brings us kicking and screaming as we may do at times through the difficult circumstances in our lives back to him whenever we have gone astray. That is the goodness that God shows us and he shows us it in one very profound way and that's in the saving. David climbs the Mount of Olives weeping after he's been betrayed. And there is another point in the Bible where we will read of a king who climbs the Mount of Olives and weeps just before he is betrayed. In Matthew chapter 26, Christ weeps in the garden, weeps before his betrayal as David weeps after his betrayal. But those two narratives are slightly different because David weeps in this passage because of his own sin whilst Christ wept in the garden for us. David weeps for himself, but Christ wept in the garden for you. David went through this suffering with friends and fellowship and support around him, whilst Christ would suffer on the cross alone, afflicted for us. Jesus, the Son of God, the King, the true King, would suffer not for himself, but for you. And God would control it so that that would be so. So that whenever you go through suffering, whenever you go through hardships, 
you might be able to know that we have a Savior who suffers with us on the cross, who has never borne any pain that we have not known, who has never wept and knows what it is to weep, or he knows what it is to weep as we weep. He is not estranged and removed from our human experiences, but he knows them intimately. And he knows our biggest and most serious condition of this life of all of them, which is alienation and estrangement from God. And he weeps for us in the garden for that. He dies on the cross to facilitate our reconciliation back to God, that whoever might trust in him might have life everlasting in fellowship with God. This passage shows how God is control in the highs and the lows, the friendships and in the betrayals, but it shows how it's all moving towards one end, which is us coming back to our Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news, the good news that you are in control. Though suffering might come, though trials may come our way, you are working through all of time and history to redeem us back to yourself. Lord, would we place our hope and trust in that? For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.